Welcome to the IoT Idols podcast. I'm Ryan Cousins, co-founder and CEO of Critical. We help bring bleeding-edge technology products to market through a combination of hardware and software modules and professional engineering services. We believe every innovator has a powerful collection of experiences and knowledge that can help inspire others in their field. If you have a story you'd like to share, stick around at the end of the show and we'll explain how you can be a guest on one of our upcoming episodes. In just 15 to 20 minutes, you could be the next IoT Idol. Thanks for listening and enjoy the episode. Hello, friends, and welcome back to IoT Idols, Innovators to Watch, brought to you by our friends over at Critical. And we are always so excited for the innovators and the minds that join us on this show to talk about the Internet of Things. And when you look back and think about the world in the last year, we have gone through so many changes. We have needed to adopt so much innovation and technology across all industries, but especially in shipping and in logistics. We, we've seen what some of the challenges were there early on in the pandemic, and we know that whenever there's a challenge, there is innovation. And so to talk about some of this innovation, I'm really honored and excited that we were able to invite Brandon Coates to join us. Brandon, welcome. Yeah, thanks, Ray. Appreciate the opportunity here. It's uh, great to get on and uh, have a little bit of a chat. Absolutely. Well, we're so grateful for the opportunity to speak with you. And I would love to kick off, Brandon, a little bit about your background and learn a little bit more about you before we talk about MHS Global. Yeah, sure. So um, I have a very disparate background uh, in a couple of different industries. So uh, when I was in college, I was doing uh, cardiovascular modeling of uh, astronauts. And so I was very fortunate to have a very good advisor. He got his PhD from MIT, and he's there one-on-one -on -one with me, kind of coaching me, mentoring me. And he really trained me to think in systems. Uh, so that, that really proved out over the next you know, 10, 15 years to be truly invaluable, to look at these large, very complex systems that are out in the world and then to understand how to optimize them and make them just better than what they could be before. Um, so that one trick that he kind of uh, uh, gave to me during that, that tenure was how to see circuit equivalent analogs for any system. So if I look at a set of resistors, capacitors, inductors, you can boil any system down to a grouping of these, whether they're in series or in parallel. And then from that, you have a mathematical model that you can go back and really drive success from. So that, that was kind of a foundation I think was very critical for me. Um, and then moving into uh, kind of graduate school, I started doing uh, design of uh, ventricular assist devices and more of like fluid mechanics type of research. And then, uh, you know, getting out of graduate school and then going out into the world, starting my first uh, uh, position um, had nothing to do with any of that. So it was completely different. Um, so I, I had a good opportunity to uh, join a friend of mine that was up in Michigan. Uh, the, the company I was working at was Senate North America. So Senate is a company based out of Stuttgart, and they're an OLP or an offline programming uh, software developer. Um, so basically, we would go through and develop the, the screens and the, the GUI interfaces 
um, for other programmers to go in and extract, uh, let's say, toolpath uh, or, or features, extract features out of CAD and generate toolpath for robotic work cells or machine tools. And so through that, uh, let's say, four or five year journey with the, uh, the software development, um, I, I spent probably a year and a half uh, feet on the ground in Spain for Airbus. And so I got used to working a, a, just a heck of a lot, uh, 14 hour days. Uh, there's some days that were like 18 hour days, especially if there's a flight the next day to come back to the U.S. And so I had a natural pressure gradient the whole time just saying, all right, you've, you've got to keep focusing on the goal, keep looking at what's next. And I, I think that was another kind of the next step to get to this point where uh, we really are today, which is uh, at MHS and leading a very nice uh, robotics organization and growing up a lot of nice automation in the world within logistics. So aircraft manufacturing, let's say uh, biofluid mechanics, <laughs> going to pump design, going to aircraft manufacturing, uh, going to material handling. So it's a, it's a strange sequence of events. It's so amazing, Brandon. So many guests that we get to speak to. One of the I always like to start there because I feel like a lot of us go to university for something and we have these big audacious career plans, and then our careers take flight. And sometimes they're even more audacious than we ever even anticipated, and we find ourselves in these crazy journeys. And, and for me, I took over a drive-in movie theater out of university, and then here I am today talking. <laughs> talking about innovation in the internet of things. It's so it's just remarkable to hear how people have kind of got to where they are. And what I'm looking forward to is five years from now when we have you back on to see what else that you've worked on between now and then. So this is super exciting, Brandon. And I want to talk about now, you know, when MHS Global, I want to kind of go back and I want to be a fly on the wall. When the pandemic, like the lockdown first came, I would love to be a fly on the wall in, in your office because I'm sure your mind was just going bonkers with you know, ways to, to maximize this challenge and to increase efficiency. And so I would love to just kind of hear how you've adapted and pivoted because of the pandemic. Sure. Yeah. So I I think there's a lot of stress that's going to be within any organization just to figure out how they're going to operate with, within that type of climate. Um, so we had to make some adjustments. We had to go through this phase to, uh, to, to really get around. And this is just how to get outside of face-to-face -face meetings and do more virtual meetings and then reach out and connect with more of the customers through virtual meetings. You know, for the, the, the 20 years before in the, the life of uh, MHS, uh, we're very big about customer relationships, uh, and we have MHS, the slogan is really, or the motto, above and beyond. So when we nurture and kind of grow these relationships, um, it's a lot of it's driven by face-to-face, -face, you know, uh, going out uh, and getting the customer site, understanding what their actual problems are, and being able to solve those problems. Um, so having to do everything virtually is definitely a challenge. It, it's throwing a, a wrench, uh, I think, into any company. But depending on how you react to it, uh, depending on what you do as next steps, uh, of course, that determines a lot in the years ahead. So, um, you know, looking back a year ago uh, when everything was uh, coming to head, I don't think any of us knew where it was going. Uh, we, at MHS, we certainly did not know where it was going. But we made countermeasures to make sure that the, the business was protected. Now, 
we did start to see patterns uh, per, pretty early on in, into it um, that technology was going to be the way out for everyone. Uh, so it, it's not just the face-to-face -face, uh, meetings that are kind of changing, but how do you set up data pipelines that weren't there before? How do you access the equipment that you, uh, before you had to go on site to have access to that, to get the data off of it? And so it's a big forcing function in the right direction for everyone. And so I, I think it's the really most analogous to the uh, the rising water level. So the technology is here, it's, it's coming up and it's gonna rise all ships. So as long as you're open to change, then you're gonna have a, a great, uh, great future ahead, right? So that's how we look at it. That's incredible. And so many businesses have had to look at all of their challenges in the last year in that fashion. You know, this this is here now and it happened in so much of industry, I think has been able as humans, right? We've been very reflective of this process. And I think as industrialists, we've had to be very reflective on our practices, on our vulnerabilities, and how to stay innovative and ahead of the curve because this has been consequential. It's so, you know, I'm just really excited that there are critical thinkers like you out there that are designing these systems to help kind of overcome and to move us and propel us forward. And so I would love to talk about now, Brandon, the operations of MHS Global and you know, what does the internet of things do for a business like this? And one of the challenging questions that I like to ask people is like, think back, what would, what would this business be like without the internet of things. Yeah, right. Okay, so I, I will tell you for uh, for 20 years, we, we grew up in the world um, and the company was basically a startup like every other company at the beginning. And so uh, it's really, uh, I would not say high technology, but you find your way to high technology. Um, as you develop your product, uh, as you go out and we're building up the base of being able to do these large projects for our customers, we're building up the confidence in the customers. We get to a point where we, we no longer have to worry as much uh, about that aspect of making sure that the base is there, but we need to make sure that the, the future is there. So in terms of IoT, if you look at what we're doing within the company, uh, there's some focal points with being able to deploy uh, uh, and get data acquisition. So uh, placing an accelerometer on a conveyor, for instance, it, it doesn't sound like it's all that important or you can get that much from it. Uh, but, you know, these accelerometers, they're embedded everywhere around us. They're, they're in the cars we drive. They're in the cell phones that we, we speak through, communicate through. And so they're, they're really everywhere. Now, what does it do on a conveyor? Maintenance, right? It, it's it's uptime of that equipment. So for us as a system integrator, we want to make sure that the equipment we deploy to customer site has just as high of an uptime as we can get. So when you collect this data and you get it from the accelerometer, you will baseline that system according to uh, the data that's recorded. So the baseline is coming and you have a, a very, let's say a Six Sigma approach to calculating what the upper and lower control limits are going to be as a, a consequence. And then at that point, it's just a matter of variance within the upper and lower limits. And when you see that you're trending towards the upper limit or trim it toward, trim, let's say trending towards the lower limit, you're going to be able to predict before the equipment is actually failing. 
That's incredible. So I'd say that's the starting point. Uh, it gets further down the road than that. Of course, uh, if you look at robotics, uh, the robot itself is a, a, a series of uh, servo mechanical drives kind of connected together. Inherently, there's data there. So when we have customers looking at robotics, they're looking at it typically to replace a, a manual function that exists within their oper operation today. Um, one thing that's very easily overlooked is the access to the data that you get with that, that robot that you deploy. So it's not just the physical action that you're replacing, it's the data that comes with it. So what, what does that mean? We can dig into that just a little bit. Um, for any process, you can break it down into kind of uh, unit testing, or you can break it down into indivisible tack times. Each of the smallest tack times that are there uh, you can basically uh, go back and get data for this and look at averages and standard deviations. And from this, you can start to drive performance out of that system. So there's a, there's a lot of additional data there that if you're creative and if you understand what it can mean to your organization, it has tremendous value. And it's value that I think we're not addressing when we try to deploy robotics because we're looking at it uh, through too simple of a lens. We're looking at it as we're replacing this physical action, right? How much does that cost for the integrator to come in and replace that physical action? But then we're not looking at the value of the data. So there's a tremendous amount of value there. And if there's one message we need to get out, it's for every organization that wants to adopt robotics to look at it through that separate lens. How can we leverage the data? How can we get to reaching our goals quicker than what we otherwise could? And that's real innovation because you're right. There's where we're working so hard to replace a specific function and we're leaving so much on the table, right? Like this is to, to create an analogy for, for some of us that are maybe a little less technical, like this is negotiating on a home and finding out that you probably could have negotiated $50,000 less. Like you're just leaving information and money on the table arbitrarily. And this is something that Brandon, like it really started to like come ahead. And this is really kind of coming home for me. And I love the way that you described this. We recently did an episode with Jay Adelston and he talked about like old pinball machines and there's data in those sensors that's never been translated before. And so it was fun to have him on and kind of talk about it. And as we're talking, I just like this, having this total kind of nerd aha moment of, oh my gosh, we're overlooking so many opportunities. That's right. Yeah. So, so I, I think it's, it's, it's a cultural uh, issue and it's really across the board. So if, if we don't have the proper foundation uh, or education and background to understand uh, how these levers are going to emerge with technology, then what you're going to find is that uh, your, your business over the, the course of its life is going to suffer from revenue. So uh, you'll not have as high of revenue as you can have, not as high of profitability. And so that happens on both sides of the table. It happens on the client side. It happens on the service side. 
That's amazing. Thank you for saying that, Brandon, because, and I'm, I'm taking notes here like crazy. And as the audience knows, I'm always taking notes uh, because I just, there's always, you never know, right? Like these kind of become mind maps for me. And, you know, one conversation can then troubleshoot a problem that, you know, you've been journaling and falling asleep on for nights. And so I, this has been. Uh, so you, you mentioned mind maps, by the way, I'm a big yeah. fan of mind maps. I actually, uh, I have the paid app that's on my phone. I use on a regular basis. And so every once in a while, as I'm going through and learning something, I'm getting through that learning curve, or if I want to put together a, a, a large organizational effort, I start to look at how all those pieces interact. And that is just a heck of a tool. So got to tie in there. Yeah. Yeah. Now, for those that are tuning in, because I agree, I think it's a very powerful tool. It's something that I think I I did kind of subconsciously in some ways, you know, like you just kind of write and draw and this is a, a problem that's come ahead and I need to figure it out. And then one day I, I come across this actual theory and concept and it has helped me break down and really reverse engineer some of my own thoughts and troubleshoot some future problems. I would love to hear how, how you have implemented mind mapping uh, because I do think it is a very critical component of innovation. That's right. Yeah. The nice thing about the tool is you start to organize your thoughts and you can organize it through like first principles. So um, the drivers can kind of be towards the center, right? And then you can start to look uh, the, away from the main drivers, how the indirect effects are coming in. So you'll find yourself moving pieces that are like way out here on the tree somewhere from one end to the other, and it actually belongs somewhere else. And if you're not mapping that out physically, then that you may not come across that, right? So I, I, it's a good tool. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> That's awesome. Thank you, Brandon. Now, I would love to uh, just kind of take a minute and and steal your mind, uh, you know, and think about, you know, where where you see the Internet of Things going. You know what? I mean, we're moving so fast and I think that there's so much innovation, um, but I would just love, you know, because I think everybody has different perspectives on this. But where do you think the Internet of Things takes us? Yeah, so it's uh, so maybe we maybe we start with like uh, kind of a negative outlook side. Um, in the U.S., we we have a lot of concerns over privacy rights. Uh, we have a lot of concerns about what data is being shared, right? And so I, I think all of that is uh, definitely justified. Um, there there are causes for concerns when it comes to that aspect, but overwhelmingly, uh, when when engineers and when innovators go out and develop new tools, um, they're using them for a very positive reason. And so we get a lot of science fiction uh, and we get a lot of like movies that are out. And in that kind of pop culture, you're looking at a future that's not so bright. But what has actually played out for uh, just centuries and centuries and centuries, like it, it's it's a repeating pattern uh, that happens again and again and again with technology, is that we develop a tool and most of us, we hold human values, right? And so the net effect of all the individual people with these nice human values, we're going to apply them in a very positive way. And so the, the outlook of where IoT is going is really total connectedness. It's it's a total data and it's total awareness. And so if you get all the way down to the end of where it's going, um, it's it's not just that it'll be a device in your pocket. It's that it's we're we're integrating those tools into us. So you, you see that with uh, 
with companies like Neuralink, uh, you see those with companies like Open Waters, where they're trying to go out and uh, kind of uh, map uh, individual neurons that are firing within the brain. And so all of that becomes data that's acceptable. We're going to digitize the firing of neurons in the brain. And, and with that, there's an incredible amount of what's next that comes with it. So it's difficult for me to say exactly what comes next, but um, there are repeating trends. And then if you think through these uh, enough, what you can kind of see is, uh, let's say total production. Um, you won't necessarily need uh, a, a large workforce. And now I'm talking decades and decades ahead. So I don't want to cause any concern here. But uh, decades and decades ahead, we'll have a lot of production. Robots will uh, do manual labor. Um, robots will get to the point where they're self-programming. I, I think a lot of people don't realize that yet. But with my background in the offline programming and a developer in that space, uh, I saw in 2014 or so when AI was starting to make an impact that it was no longer CAM software, right? Uh, it was going to be AI cam. It was going to be AI that was doing it in the background. Why do I need to have a person on a screen selecting features and edges and supports for the vectors of my toolpath when that is a perfect job for software? So I, I'd say that's much shorter term than the uh, the, the other case that we looked at. So um, yeah, that that's one example. And we could probably look at several more depending on what you want to look at. Oh, absolutely right. My sister and I—we're—we're we're both get into uh, you know challenging conversations sometimes, and uh, you know we had one debate that went down a rabbit hole for like four or five hours on at what point can the technology of something like Neuralink, uh, you know, how do we take these neurons and digitize them and implement some level of consciousness? Right? It like this just went down so far. So I. I I, I will say on that that uh, Neuralink is like the, the the ultimate goal of being able to read and write uh, neurons. But if you look at companies like Open Water, um, that one they just want to be able to access and read the neurons. And you could have a small device that is just something that you wear on your your head, like a like built into a toboggan or something built into a hat. And with that, that can basically get all the resolution that it needs to to uh, read each of the neurons firing and start to recreate. Uh, what is there. So there, there's been studies that were done before with, uh, let's say, a couple of hundred of like grad school students that are getting onto MRI machines and they would have them watch videos and then they would take a neural network and map between the video and what the MRI machine was showing. And the, the interesting thing there is that MRIs have really bad resolution. And so the video came out very, very poor. And you could tell that there's people in the scene, but you can't tell too much more than that. There's not a whole lot of resolution to the video with the predictor coming out of the, the algorithm. And so uh, at, at that point, um, if you have finer resolution, you can actually get a full HD map. So you can see what the eyes are seeing in real time. And so I, I think that's probably about 10 years out from where we are. Isn't that incredible to think about? Yeah, that's one of my passions is what I do. Well, Brandon, I I have to tell you, I hope that we can have you on uh, Innovators to Watch again soon, because uh, I know we're going to want to follow up. Uh, I love everything that you're working on, and I just am so grateful for the conversation today. Uh, and I know that our audience is as well. And so for them tuning in, what is the best way to connect with you and to follow you further? 
Yeah, so I think the easiest way is my LinkedIn profile. I'm a, a very open person, so uh, willing to have any type of conversation, reach out, uh, and we'll we'll have a chat. Amazing. And I've already sent uh, Brandon a connection. So I hope you all tuning in will as well. We're super grateful to him. And of course, we're super grateful to all of you for tuning in to IoT Idols, innovators to watch. Again, I am your host, Rye Russell. This episode is brought to you by Critical. We'll see you on the next show. Hey, this is Critical CEO Ryan Cousins again. Thanks for listening to this episode of the IoT Idols podcast. If you're an accomplished engineer, inventor, product manager, or technology entrepreneur, and would like to be featured on an upcoming episode, please go to critical.com slash podcast slash apply. That's K-R-T-K-L dot com slash podcast slash apply. If you enjoyed this episode, please tell a friend or share it on social media and leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. If you know someone you'd like to have us interview, let them know about the show or tag them on social media using the hashtag IoT Idols. We're always looking for great guests eager to share their stories with our audience. We're regularly posting new episodes, so make sure you subscribe to our podcast, follow us on social media, and join our mailing list at critical.com. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, be excellent. Be excellent.